Welcome back to Over To You. This is episode two, and today I am joined by a, a remarkable individual. She is a director, a writer. She has been a script supervisor to some of the most recognizable names in film. Uh, she's lived through the, the, the most interesting times that I think New York City's ever seen, and uh, I'd very much like to welcome her to the podcast. Her name is Martha Pinson. Hello. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Indeed. Uh, it's not quite as nice a day as it was yesterday, sadly, but uh, perhaps this is better weather to be sitting inside talking to one another on record. So Martha sent me uh, a really interesting s short breakdown of life in the 80s in New York just a couple of days ago, which I read through. I actually wanted to highlight a few of these points because much like yesterday's episode with Albert, we were talking about living through that era and the intensity of what that was and how what he said was that at the time, it never really felt as crazy as it is now to look back on it. It was more so a means of survival and therefore you weren't, you weren't analyzing quite how absurd it really was. So I'd love to, first of all, have an introduction from you. If, if you feel as though my introduction wasn't necessarily as good as it could have been. And, uh, and then we can perhaps touch on those subjects. Well, I thought your introduction was excellent. And um, yes, I, um, I grew up in uh, a small town in New Jersey, uh, sort of suburban rural New Jersey. But my dad often worked in New York City. So I was familiar with in New York. It was sort of our city <clears throat> when I was a child didn't come here that much, but it was always awe-inspiring, and I do remember in high school, you know, getting on a bus or a train and coming to the village to see two Bergman movies and getting some hippie jewelry and uh, maybe some really not-so-good, uh, like, chicken salad at a, one of those delis and, you know, not feeling so good on the way home, <laughs> but I did love Bergman movies, and they weren't showing at my local theater. And then, uh, but it was, um, it was in, somewhat intimidating. You wanted to, you know, be with your dad or someone who, you know, was going to like look after you a little bit. Um, then I went to college upstate and then most of my friends uh, were kind of moving up to Boston after college. I graduated from Vassar in 1970. But then I kind of outgrew Boston after a while. So I was drawn back to New York, started working here, living here, being in and out of here in the late 70s then um, settled in full-time in 1980, got my own apartment. I fell in love with Central Park, so I, I was a little jogger and I loved to go up there, uh, although not after dark in those days. Um, and so I've been sort of an Upper West Sider ever since working on films in New York and really enjoying the creative community of people who are here and also the film industry has just blossomed, which has been great. So, um, yeah, I love New York. I could probably work for the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> sure. I, interestingly enough, I, I think the last time I was here when you and I spent time together, I'd been to shoot some portraits of Lance Wyman, who's a remarkable artist who notoriously did the graphics for the Mexico Olympics. And he bought a place up on... The say, Mexico Olympics in 68? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he did the artwork for that. And... Um, so I went to his studio and it's it's up on, I want to say 120, maybe not. It's sort of midway up 
Central Park on the west side? What would that be? 125th somewhere around? Well, is that too C- high? Central Park itself yeah. ends at, um, I think it's uh, 105. Oh, so then I'm way off. It must be like 90s up in that yeah. somewhere <laughs> midsection. So this place is stunning. It's a, it's a five-story townhouse and he bought it for pebbles at a time where that was an area in which you just didn't go much like the lower east side it was pimps and hookers a lot of drug dealers and various gang violence and he bought the place at a time where it had been a crack den slash whorehouse and the, the he still has the original panes of glass in the window of his studio which have bullet holes in them and he bought it that way and was so enamored by how extreme that was that he's just left them that entire time. They just have little bits of tape over them. But that's what interests me because now, obviously, as as we know, that's not quite the area that it once was. Um, And how do you feel that's changed dramatically in your time and and perhaps how that started and when it started? Well, the, um, yeah, the 80s were uh, still a very tough time in terms of, I think what was going on was crackheads were trying to steal stuff to buy crack. And so it was sort of all over the place, um, you know, breaking car windows on the street in order to steal the radio or whatever was in there, a coat. Um, and there were, there were gangs. I remember at 87th Street and, uh, yeah, Central Park West, Columbus Avenue, that was some sort of zone of like a conflict zone between two different dealer gangs. Oh, God. This is where he is, yeah, around that area, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, crazy things would happen, and you always had to be cautious and careful. And, and this extended into the early 90s, I would say, and then it did seem to ease up, and things got a lot more <clears throat> predictable and safer, I guess. So I remember a story that you told me Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, for somehow it's burnt into my brain, which is that you told me that there was a period of time where random people would just come through the fire escape into your apartment. <laughs> I swear you told me. Did yes, you, you this did, is true. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So would you enlighten okay. me? <laughs> well, this is going back even farther. I, I think I was like toward the end of college and my sister and her boyfriend then to be um, husband at the time rented a, a, a small apartment. Um, on the Lower East Side, I'm going to say East East 11th, East 10th Street, between Avenue B and Avenue C. Right. And um, yeah, there was a uh, the toilet was in the main hall, and the uh, when you came in the kitchen, it was sort of one room, and then there was a like a board over the the sort of kitchen sink. If you took off the board, that was a bathtub. Yeah, okay, it was you know okay. And, uh, you know, you walk up the stairs, and there was a fire escape, to, uh, you know, onto this sort of, um, you know, the back of the building and the opening between uh, the, the various lots. So my, my friend Jane Duffy, who was a um, college, you know, buddy of my sister's at Sarah Lawrence, and I were, you know, hanging out on the couch, and these guys just came in off the fire escape to steal stuff, right? They, they always did. I mean, it was just normal. And then... So they, they paused and decided that we were really pretty and it, they would go steal us anything we wanted. And I was just like, you know, if you could just bring back our television, that would be great. 
And that was so they, it. They, they just sort of hung out for a little bit and, and left. I mean. But did you get the TV back? No. <laughs> That's. I, it was, <laughs> that was, <laughs> I don't think they would remember which was which, or they might not have even been the guys sure. who actually stole it. They were just doing their thing. And uh, Jane was very pretty, I will say that. Um, anyway, uh, I guess one of the things that, uh, that sort of taught me was that in a situation where there is a threat, it's better to be, just sort of remain calm and human and um, don't, don't sort of do what they expect, you know, or I don't know. I think it's sort of like make them think that you're crazier than they are. Sure. And then you're probably, they'll, they'll be, you'll be okay. Just, they'll just be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, that, that's, there is that instance. I mean, it's used a lot you are more terrified of, of me than I am of you. It's, it's the common thing that you get told as a child, that spiders are more scared of you than you are of them, right? It's, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, analogy that can sort of carry across various things. But yeah, that's, that's a solid technique, which is to sort of out crazy the crazy person and sort of hope that they don't call your bluff. <laughs> and, and just catch them off guard. Sure. That they're expecting you to be defensive and angry right. and you're just like, Completely oh, blase. Oh, sorry, I, I, don't, I only have $2. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so tell me about that story because you've written about that and that really interested me. Um, that was, at what, what time? Of that was in 1982, Okay. I would say, on the Upper West Side. There again, that same Central Park West area. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just coming home and I did know that like two flights up in my apartment were a bunch of friends and people that I was, you know, hanging out with. And, um, but, you know, it's a brownstone and you go down a couple of steps and in the front door and there's, you know, uh, you know, it's a locked door, but if you just sweep in and you're not paying attention, someone could be lurking and sweep in behind you, which this young thief did. So, <clears throat> He just said, you know, give me your money. So I, I just stop on the stairs and, and I go, oh, darn, you know, I was going to go to the bank and get some more cash, but I'm sorry, all I have is $2. And, and I take it out and I give it to him. He goes, oh, that's all you got? Never mind, forget it. And he starts to leave. Okay. So I'm like, no, really, it's okay. And I start following him and he was just looking at me like, okay, I'm out of here. And um, it, I think... It's just that theory of disconcert the person a little bit and um, it'll be okay that, you know, they just sense like, okay, it's over. I got to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's a great, great means of disarming someone, I think, is is sort of approaching it with a blasé manner and, 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 and a solid poker face, which is that ultimately you may be dying inside of fear. But if, if, if so long as you don't show that, then, uh, you know, you're somewhat on a level playing field. But um Oh, yeah, I told him that the two bucks would, would help him get a cab home. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which in that day and age probably would have done. Mm -hmm. Perhaps not so much anymore. But um, So I want to talk a little bit about you and what you do and uh, so people can understand the process of, of your life and what you've come to do and what you've, what you've done and what we know you for. So... I'd more so like to give you the floor to start, perhaps just through a process post-graduation and then into where you are now would be a, a fascinating place to start, I think. That's been quite a few years, but okay, I'll try to summarize. Sure. Um, 
I was an English major at Vassar, graduated with honors. I studied Greek tragedy and Shakespeare and yeah, I, and I really did not have an idea what I would do. But, um, and I was also in the modern dance performing group. I loved art, I loved movies, oh boy. So, but none of that was very practical. And I even considered applying, you know, I did actually sort of consider going to law school because what was I gonna do? There, I think there was 12% unemployment in Boston at the time in the early 70s. So I eventually got a job <coughs> selling tickets at a beautiful little art house movie theater called the Orson Welles, part-time, and then I got moved up to being the manager and then the public relations director for the theater, which was awesome. And um, the coolest thing about even the job selling tickets was that it gave me a free pass to all the theaters around Cambridge. The, you know, the, they were great art house theaters in Harvard Square. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. And um, so I handled a lot of films for new directors. We did documentaries and um, art movies and foreign films, all sorts of cool things. And um, doing the public relations, I had to be pretty creative about it because they weren't fully established, you know, studio releases or anything, and did quite well. And actually, a couple of these young directors said to me, Martha, I made money based on what you did. You have to work for me. And I was like, okay, doing what? And I, you know, as I say, growing up as a, you know, kid in New Jersey, I didn't think about making a movie. That was a Hollywood thing, although it was becoming a New York thing at the time. Um, so I, uh, you know, I said, okay, and... I didn't know what I would do, but I went uh, uh, on as a, a PA, didn't like that, and then met a script supervisor on this first film I did with uh, Terry McLuhan. And she was French and had written a book in French, but I knew French, so I was able to read it. And um, so that was sort of an idea. Also, in those days, you know, film crews were mostly guys, and you did have to carry a lot of heavy stuff, which I was not interested in doing. So script supervising was kind of a logical job for a woman, for a young woman or a girl on set. I mean, and I knew I couldn't be a director unless, because I didn't have a super rich millionaire dad. You know, it was, you had to, right, somehow do that all yourself, so I needed a job. Anyway, so I, um, I was a trainee with um, someone on, an, on the set of another woman's film that I uh, had handled, and um, kind of got the hang of it and seemed like okay. And I realized it was a good union job, so I went ahead and did it. And I kind of hit New York, I guess maybe sort of as an outlier, at the time when it was getting busier here and it was, it was becoming a very, very uh, special, gorgeous place to shoot. And all the wonderful directors I had admired as I was a film buff, <laughs> um, were shooting here, not all of them, but a lot of them. And uh, so I did have a chance to work for so many great people, Milos Forman, Brian De Palma, Mar Martin Scorsese, Sidney Lumet, just in, that was just in the 80s, you know. <laughs> wow. I, I've heard many stories that that group of individuals used to spend a lot of time together as well, somewhat living in a co-op environment. And I believe there's one, I, I want to say it's legitimate, which is that Martin and Steven Spielberg were hanging out together and 
George Lucas came to show them a very rough copy of Star Wars in in I want to say it was here it was that they I'm not sure where it was but it was it was uh, you know uh, early days of George doing what he was doing and they were hanging out together and he was enamored by the idea of wanting to show them this very rough copy of Star Wars and I I I think I heard this story from watching a Spielberg documentary and I mean that guy that that guy's career is remarkable because he is the ultimate hustler and has thankfully given us some remarkable things but I just the romanticism in my mind of the idea of these guys just spending time together and being nerds and making films that have arguably gone on to be the the most prolific films of all time really I mean it really fills me with a sense of joy and yesterday in the discussion I was having with Al is that I just feel like that connectivity and that admiration for one's peers just doesn't exist like it did then for for my generation. Ah, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Um, Yeah, there still is a um, substantial collaboration. As I was saying, that's one of the things I love about New York. Uh, I, I couldn't connect specifically to those guys I mean I think they are still friends you know I'd I'd hope so yeah yeah and I do know that I I saw this documentary about Brian De Palma where he and Scorsese were friends and then it was Brian De Palma who introduced Robert De Niro to Marty wow and you know so they okay it was I think it was a Sarah Lawrence sort of um program that they were in you know near New York Mm -hmm. and um yeah, on from there. I when I was working with Marty one night, I remember Spielberg came by. They were obviously yeah, that was back in '99. They're still friends. Yeah. Yeah. I um I'm I'm very much fascinated by that, and also again something I touched on yesterday was the was a place that I wish that I could have experienced in its height, which was the Chelsea Hotel. And I don't know how much of that plays into the the life that you've lived, but the stories that I've heard just make me uh, feel such a sense of of lust for wanting to experience what that was in its prime as opposed to all of the the modern attempts at, at revival not necessarily there but a world you know worldwide and uh, I wondered if that ever played a prolific role in your life and I was there but not exactly you know um, I think what happened mainly was uh, for me you know, I had my apartment on Central Park West, uh, vicinity. I would show up for work and, you know, kill it for like whatever time it takes to make the film and go home. And then we'd have a, um, a, a rap party somewhere. We would get on a um, van or a bus or in a car and go to incredible locations all over the five boroughs. And, um, but we didn't hang out that much. So, I mean, there probably were parties and people were hanging out at the Chelsea Hotel, but I wasn't, you know, in that sort of scene. Okay. It was, it was much more a thing of um, get the work done <laughs> and get some sleep, show up the next day. I'm that way inclined and I always come across like I, I'm, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute. I think to most people who imagine the entertainment industry is primarily 
the idea of what the Chelsea Hotel once was. And I think there are actually a lot of people that are my age wanting to live the reality of that and just not quite, <laughs> not quite getting there. Uh, namely because most of the drugs that are available are not what they once were. Uh, so I think that probably plays a large <laughs> part in that factor. <clears throat> um, there, we, I, I can remember going to a couple of different bars in New York in the 80s and there would be movie stars there, and maybe someone I worked with. I mean, it wasn't like it was dead, <laughs> but um, we had fun. And, um, but yeah, that, that was, you know, that was a certain scene that I didn't happen to be in. It's interesting that you say that you would see movie stars at bars and so on, whereas in this day and age, you, you see them buying avocados in Whole Foods in West Hollywood. And uh, I, I, I saw That too, yeah. Yeah, but I've, I kind of love the idea of that. There's something for me, having come from music, where the camaraderie of being a musician as far as the entourage and having security and so on and so forth is remarkable because that's a 24-7 operation, whereas a lot of actors who are considerably more famous as far as on a numbers level is concerned. You'll just see them knocking about in LA in pajamas, doing very normal people things. Uh, I was I was in Whole Foods in West Hollywood and I saw John Malkovich buying cookies, which was just such a funny thing for me just based on him alone as a character. And he was standing there having an internal debate as to whether he was going to buy snickerdoodle or, <laughs> or chocolate chip. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought what's so great about him as a character is that this too could have just been something you'd expect to see from him in any of the films that he's done, which was, which is a really beautiful moment for me to just stand back and observe and, and watch. And something I like that uh, about mm -hmm. LA is the ability to be able to observe people, namely because no one walks in LA. So you, if you get out on your feet and look around, you can see some, pretty spectacular things uh much like you can here but i feel like this city was designed with the walker in mind and you can truly uh pace yourself here i think and see some pretty remarkable things in, in uh in the process of doing so but on the subject of which something else that really stuck out to me was uh in your piece that you sent me how you explained to your son that walking in the center of the road at night was a really sensible thing to do because it meant that you were less likely to be jumped by someone in a dark corner and and more visible to the people that were around you which is so odd to me because i have never felt safer anywhere than i do in manhattan more so than i do in london more so than i do anywhere essentially but here i just feel i feel so safe was that you or me <laughs> I don't think it was me. But Maybe that was me. It might have been. I don't know. We were interrupted there by uh, by some FaceTime. No, I. I it wasn't you. I don't seem to have a call or anything. Okay, I'm glad it was you. Okay, cool. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go. I'm going fully offline. There <laughs> we go. Um. So yeah, I, that that really interests me solely on on the fact that this city doesn't come across like that anymore. Uh, apart, apart from up in the Bronx, I was there the other day and uh, I saw some pretty wild things go, <laughs> go down in the <laughs> 45 minutes that I was there. I was waiting for my cab and uh, I saw about 30 police cars just screaming into the block and helicopters. And as I left, someone texted me. He was like, oh, you just 
just missed a pretty spectacular shootout. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, there'd been some wild robbery that had happened. And I was like, okay, oh, well, God. you know, the, the Bronx is interesting. And I, someone told me yesterday that they tried to rebrand it as Sobro. I don't know if you know about this, but they, they went through this whole marketing campaign of like, oh, let's gentrify Sobro. And, and no one was interested. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they just backed out of that entirely. But, um, but here especially uh, in the west side and moving down walking from here across to union square and down to the lower east side it it feels so so safe in comparison to what you've touched upon in what you said so it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that the i love that it's safe um and regarding um the uh the, the sort of guidance to my son and, and his friends as to how to manage the potential dangers of the city when they were young. I mean, my son was born in 84, so this would probably have been about 94, or, you know, where he might be walking home from school by himself or something could be sort of after dark or mm. this and that. I, you know, I, I certainly kept an eye on him. Um, but um, <clears throat> there was a, there was a, a sort of a style where a, a, someone who was, looking to rob someone would kind of stay in the darkness down the steps or you know a little bit in, in a corner um in the stairway to a uh, another building and then the person on the sidewalk you know wouldn't see them coming so they could like lunge out there and quickly you know rob the person so uh the um it was just safer to be in the middle of the street because you would see them before they could get to you. Whereas if you're right there on the sidewalk, you wouldn't, they could sneak up on you. Okay, it was just one of those things. And um, a couple of my son's friends that, that you know, as they got older, <clears throat> that they did that until they were, you know, quite, quite grown up because it just it was like, yeah, it's dark there. I'm gonna stay in the middle of the street. I can see him coming, fine. Then I'm not a, then I'm not a target. And also, there was the uh, $20 mugging money, right. which um, we gave our kids to um, just throw a 20 at the, who, if some you know, guys surround you and want your money or whatever, just throw them a 20 and run, and that'll just hopefully distract them. Of course, <laughs> you know, my, no, 20 bucks, I want to spend that. I can go to the movies. But of course. I know, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was, I was oh. once subject to an attempted muggery in london back when camden was not quite as touristic as it is now i had gone a little off piste in in a back alley looking for someone looking for a store and i didn't have a phone at that time you know it was very much you just sort of had to figure it out i walked down this alley and this group of of guys just surrounded me i knew exactly what was going to happen and th I, thankfully to my left there was a a jumpable fence and I, I, I just went into full Olympian mode and just jumped the fence, landed on the other side, and it was just a gas station on the other side, and this cab driver, I, I sort of landed directly in front of him. He stopped. I was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm sort of being mugged. I, could, I don't know what I'm doing right now. He was like, get in, get in my car, and I'll, I'll take you somewhere. And he drove me back to, to the station that I, I needed to, to get back to where I was going without charging me which was amazing at that point i think it really it put this i was young at this point 16 17 i i just started going to the city 
and that somewhat put this faith in me that you know there is an equilibrium of of uh, someone's good goodness coming through in 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 the light of uh, you know several other people's darkness and uh and i've always thought about that when i'm when i'm in that city specifically because there are some pretty terrible things happening in london currently as far as criminal activity is concerned namely due to the drastic cuts to police budget so we just don't have beat officers that we once did we've closed a lot of police stations so there's this sort of underlying sense of lawlessness mainly petty crime stealing mopeds uh, but in broad daylight from people on the street like grand theft auto style which is alarming and you would not expect something from from a place like london as far as like Ooh, we live in the developed Western world. Why are we experiencing these things? But that's the reality of it. And I think, I don't know this, but that Giuliani was responsible for essentially how this city ended up becoming a more approachable and touristic place. Is that correct? Was that, that the right mayor? He. Yeah, <clears throat> I have to say, I, I never liked him. But, and uh, he seemed to be um, very racist and aggressive on certain issues. But I guess he did help restore um, more safety on the street. He, yeah, he started that. And then um, Bloomberg did a great job of just investing in the city, like fixing up the parks and mm -hmm. making it much more uh, attractive and, uh, and continuing to fund whatever police presence we need and so forth. So, um, yeah, I guess. But you also noted that there was an etiquette to riding the subway as a as a white female living in the city where you you would try and put yourself in a position where you had as many exit routes as possible. <laughs> you know, it turns out that's a, I heard a joke. Um, oh, yeah, this was from Colin, uh, Colin Quinn, the uh, red state, blue state. Uh, he's a great uh, performer, com yeah. uh, writer, comedian. And um, he made a joke about like, this idiot was on the first car. Nobody rides on the first car. I mean, that's even that might even still be true. But um, yeah, there was a theory that um, because the subways were, it was dodgy. You know, things could happen, robberies, etc. Mm -hmm. And so, rule of thumb for me was never sit in the first car or the last car because if something goes down, you mm -hmm. want to have two ways to run. You know, just get out of there get out of there and um i think that was just <laughs> but i think for some people it was literally just the first car that you were an idiot if you were maybe because well right. obviously if there's a crash you're gonna get the, the biggest impact yeah but um so yeah and then um i didn't um it was more expensive in that you know i felt like if it's very early or very late i have to get a cab yeah which was annoying but okay and, you know, you just didn't want to be stupid and be out and be invulnerable, you know, as a, you know, just a young person with a pocketbook, you could just be a target, you know, no particular reason. Right. <laughs> so on a more, uh, on a lighter note, um, I'd like to talk about some of the projects that you're doing now and also actually how we came to know one another through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Robin, who's uh, an up and coming director in, in London he and I were talking and he told me the story of how he met you, which was actually quite interesting being that he'd gone to 
was it Cannes that you met at? No, we were at, in a, a small city called Poole, which is south of London for a film festival. Oh, you were yeah. in Poole. Okay. Uh, for some reason, it was in my mind. I've sort of misconstrued two stories. He told me this <laughs> other really interesting story about him at Cannes where he'd gone there with no money and slept on the beach, but took a, a tux with him and then would just basically gate crash parties as though he was supposed to be there, but was <laughs> actually just sleeping on the beach, um, which... I have every intention of turning into a short, I think, because it would make an interesting short. But he he told me that he'd, he'd met you and the meeting of, of you was particularly interesting because I think you ended up conversing based on the fact that the room was not necessarily as interesting as it could have been. And you just sort of found one another. And uh, it was one of those very organic meetings of minds. And um, yeah, I, just, uh, I was fascinated by you as an individual, I think, and just the 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 stories that he told me and that we then spoke of when we went to the Cartier-Bresson exhibition actually the last time we yeah. were here so I would love to talk a little more about where you are now post the the experiences that you've had and what your primary focuses are moving forward okay uh yes it was really fun to be at that festival and, and meet Robin and other people that were um, they were, you know, helpful to me. It was, and I think there's something where being the mom, you know, my son is now 34, um, and I just got used to hanging out with all his friends. He was very popular. Everyone would come over to our house. Uh, and um, so I just feel very comfortable with um, basically the, the next generation of young filmmakers mm. and kids. I don't know. <laughs> You're kids to me. Um, so I uh, had this wonderful, wonderful experience of directing an independent feature film from a very good script. Uh, the, pr the producer and directors you know, hired me. The, sorry, the producer writers ha hired me to direct it. And um, it's doing very well at the moment in film festivals. Mm. And hopefully, you know, we'll be getting out to a, a more screenings, a wider audience. Uh, I just feel really grateful that the knowledge that I gained and the experience that I gained, both as a filmmaker, a script supervisor on large movies, and then I took my time off in between films uh, to write screenplays, direct theater, direct shorts, um, collaborate with my friends, you know, some of them since college, um, to do a project. And um, it, none of the things that I did... Um, you know, directly got me a job, uh, but the whole process of building experience and a resume as a director was certainly worth it. And um, so, yeah, I, I just had a wonderful time. I'd like to do another film. I'm still writing and doing revisions and reading projects that people might be interested in hiring me for. I feel I have to really, really love a script in order to direct it. That just because there's so much that goes into it that so much is personal and your judgment about each moment does matter. And so I want to feel connected to it in a, in a pretty strong way before I would say I would put this into it. So I, I guess on some level also, um, you know, my son's through college and the loans are paid off. I, uh, I don't feel pressured to, to just take a job, to just do something. Um, <laughs> reminds me of a Bob Dylan lyric, I've already gone the distance, I'm just thinking of a series of dreams. So I, I feel like I should do something that I just am drawn to, like, you know, 
in a dream. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's the ideal situation that any creative wishes for is being in a position where you can say no to the to the work that pays the bills in the hope that this one particular passion project as people like to refer to <laughs> it as becomes the thing that ultimately elevates you to the next level and I I thankfully discovered that what it was that I needed to do was to create storytelling means of direction so it would be through documentary or through a manner such as this to create platforms where I could just entice the idea of storytelling from characters that I was you know very much inspired by and this has become more and more of a reality and now I'm at a point where I need to start writing and the I wouldn't say it's a fear there's there's an anxiety in me which is just how mammoth the task to me appears to actually write a screenplay or to even just to start writing uh discourse between two people I find it I I it's a monumental task which I just procrastinate on so vehemently that I, I pretend that it's not really there until I have discussions with people like yourself and realize that I feel as though the only way to accomplish this is is to to just start scribbling and then sort of hope that it snowballs into something but I just I haven't even I haven't started this this alone this project alone was something that's been on my mind for over a year and I just thought, yeah, you know, I'll do it in time. Namely, because I just didn't know how I felt about sitting down and actually conversing with something, recording that that conversation. I think it was. I, I can't. I couldn't tell you what it is because to a lot of other people, I feel as though I come across as a very outgoing individual. But the reality is that, for the most part, the majority of my ideas are very much stuck in the depths of my psyche and I have absolutely no idea how to extract them so instead I just sort of I'm not sure just coast coast through life hoping that I'll get to a point where I can do what you've just discussed pay off bills make sure everything else is dealt with and then you can sort of think now I have time to really focus but I don't know it's a strange time being 30 years old in 2019 <laughs> Uh, there are, by the way, um, <clears throat> some good books on how do you get around what some people might describe as writer's block, sure. which I think most people have on some level. Um, I can tell you about some of those when we turn off the mics. But <laughs> yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, so actually, what would be really interesting, I think, just from the perspective of anybody that's listening that doesn't understand what a script supervisor might be it would be great to have a breakdown of, of that and what your role and responsibility was um, I think there are so many job titles within film specifically that a lot of people don't necessarily understand and it would be great to get some clarity on that from the perspective of someone as uh, accomplished as yourself in that field yes absolutely it is, yeah, there are a lot of jobs, and it's a private place. We work on the set. It's closed. No one goes there to s see stuff, you know. So a script supervisor is one of the key advisors to the director on set and is the liaison between the set and the cutting room. Our primary assignment is to guarantee 
that the film will cut, that there are no errors in the staging coverage language, uh, whatever, of, the, of any scene or any shot that will make it more difficult to assemble as a scene with you know, various angles on the same action and to provide the pr proper transition to the next uh, s scene in the script. Right. So it is about um, matching the action, making sure the dialogue is um, correct, um, doing a breakdown in prep to determine the uh, time frames of the various scenes and how long, uh, what year they took place in, how old are the characters, uh, is it a flashback mm -hmm. to when, um, and then watching right by camera or right in the um, video, video village, everything that's going on, and it's the details. Um, you know, when you've established that a man is, an actor is carrying a briefcase in his right hand when he comes out of a door uh, in a shot that you, you've done, and then you're about to do the shot where he actually leaves, goes through the door, he needs to have the briefcase in that same hand, or, you know, give or take. So that comes into continuity so also, right? It that is continuity. You, that's a big thing. So are you also part of that, or do you have someone else that will handle continuity alongside you? Well, no, the, that is the, the script supervisor's job. Basically, continuity is another, you know, it's almost another word for it. Right. The uh, matching continuity, mm -hmm. um, cutting problems, you know, that's all, you know, in editing problems are all our uh, business to watch. Um, so, uh, yeah, but every department head and b the director and the DP, everybody, and the actors, and they know it, things have to cut, they have to match. It's a, it's a generally understood. So, uh, though there's a free range, you know, so a scene can just play on its own. You're not gonna intercut anything, so it just is what it is. You can ad lib, whatever. There's a lot of that. Um, but. Everyone understands that the film has to cut. They don't want to do something stupid. So it's sort of, the script supervisor is the one to just double check and run, jump in front of the moving train if something is wrong, that somehow somebody overlooked. Yeah, that kind of thing, you know. You don't, who knows why. Uh, there could be a little confusion about what we're doing. They changed the schedule. We're doing a lot of scenes in one day, right. so the actor puts on the wrong tie. It could happen, mm -hmm. that, you know, that kind of thing. You speak of it in, in such a blasé manner, considering it's probably one of the most stressful jobs on, on set, I think. <laughs> it is, yeah, I always found it was stressful. Um, yeah, it's, and, um, but it's, you know, as I said, it's a good union job, you know. Sure, <laughs> those, are, those are rare things in this day and age, <laughs> I think. But, um, well, perhaps this is a good place to leave it, as um, I know we're also on a time constraint at this point. Not really. We still have some time? Yeah. Then absolutely. Um, then more so I'd be interested to see if there's anything that you would like to discuss personally, um, touch on anything. I mean, that's the nature of what this is. is a, it's, a, it's a platform for, for storytelling. So I would love to hear if you had anything else that you would want to, to touch on. Oh, you also have some beautiful light on your face right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the sun just came out. Um,
<laughs> is that a sign? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, um, you know, I sort of feel like uh, grateful in a sense that, um, you know, as a woman working, um, things have progressed, you know, that it was um, not easy and um, not sort of assumed that I could become a director, um, but I did. <laughs> and um, that was a combination of my own initiatives and persistence, but also the change in time where it, it has now become more acceptable uh, that a woman can be a director of a film. And, you know, I also felt that I had to be very prepared, which turns out is smart, and that I had to study leadership. You know, there's a sort of basic sense that men are better at leadership, but there's ways to develop those skills as a woman, as whoever, which I think means respecting your team, appreciating the people that are supporting you, and knowing what you're doing so that things are not confused, that you can communicate what you want and um, move things along So, with, with gratitude. I think that's important. And then um, I also think it's wonderful. That, that one of the great things I felt about this is that there's there's something I think that I, that almost anyone as a creative person has to say a little bit more, just a slight shift in the point of view of a film or a piece of art or whatever that is, it's just a little different because a woman is behind it. We experience the world just a little differently and um, perhaps are a little more deeply connected to certain emotions and relationships and um, you know nuances and obviously this this changes and evolves too but I do think it's great that in in art there are more more voices of or more visions of women being there nothing against the guys but you know just oh that's yeah right to make people think you know about something just a little different of course I think it's a necessity, especially in a day and age where we're very much more enlightened to the perspective of there being a considerable gap between both genders. And it's wonderful from my perspective to see this strong independence of female leadership becoming very prominent, especially across the arts. And instead of, as you said, taking a role that you felt was more geared towards your gender at that point, i.e. being a script supervisor or perhaps being a curator or being whatever it's it's now that these positions are being looked at as a, a, a genderless position and instead it's based solely on your ability to actually do the job and if you're the best person for the job then that's what that is and I think it's imperative that we we see more and more of this and I, I, I very much think it's a generational thing I think of, of our generation we're considerably more open to the ideas i mean i don't even know if it's something that the majority of my generation even think about so much as it it was very different in in the time at which i believe you know you yes. you would have been my age there was a lot more to think about in regards to the fact that you were a, a, a female and you were in a position of 
of compromise to many uh you know to many other people i i think that that's changing we're seeing it a lot especially with leadership even in this city specifically with a very interesting character who i got in a debate not with yesterday but about yesterday uh, based on this Amazon debacle, but that's something we won't get into. <laughs> but it's amazing to see that as well. I think you know, and she she ticks a lot of the right boxes in regards to a sort of progressive liberal movement, being that you know, she's come from a minority background and she's a very young, outspoken female. That that's that's great, and it's also what's missing, I think, from politics specifically is somebody that actually has some charisma beyond uh, the entertainer that's currently <laughs> running running the show. But it's just lovely to be able to sit here with you and and talk about the progression and and especially from being in a perspective where you thought, I I don't know what it is that I want to do. So instead, I'll take this because this feels like it's the right thing. And then over that time to have been able to evolve into who you are today and it feeling very organic and now living in an age where that's absolutely doable and and. something that you can you can sit back and reflect upon instead of sort of thinking uh it's best not to talk about this well you know when i was got out of college uh it the the idea of working on a movie was 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 remote i mean it was more of a hollywood thing but i realized pretty quickly that filmmaking just and films i love movies you know as a viewer uh it combined the artistic elements of everything that I loved. I loved modern dance, movement. I loved drama, Shakespeare, Euripides, you know, Mm -hmm. I loved novels. So it was writing, art. I was also a a painter, a sketcher, you know, until I realized I was never going to make any money doing art, you know, drawing. Okay. So the funny thing was that all those things, like being a modern dancer, that was not going to make money. But that filmmaking combined all the artistic aspects of work and you know efforts that I really liked but also there was a job you know you could do it you know that was exactly exactly the epiphany that I had when I realized that I'd pursued over a decade in music and loved film and loved photography and suddenly came to this conclusion that the one way of being able to combine all the things I love being music, storytelling, imagery, oh uh, God, yes. and so on, was being thing. a director. Yeah. It was like, oh, wait, I can, all of these things I love, I can now combine into one thing that I can then adore as, as an artist. Yes. Why didn't I do this in the first place? But, but now I feel so comfortable in that role because it's, actually I'd rather I'd done what I did before and had the experiences that I had because it leads you into a stronger position as a creative I think to be able to make more executive decisions in other departments without having to depend on somebody to constantly advise you so having spent so much time pulling apart music and pulling apart performance there's a there's experience there that that's priceless and that really carries and you know I I talk relentlessly about Tarantino specifically in his usage of music in film which is such a major part of him as an artist and it's such an identifiable part of the package that you get with Tarantino and I recently rewatched Django and it's got such a beautiful soundtrack of very you know very mixed uh, genres and 
one of the songs songs got stuck in my head and i was racking my brain for it and i i ended up having to pull up the wikipedia page of the soundtrack and i just went through every single one i could find typing it back into search engines and i i settled on the one that it that it was and uh it's a beautiful composition and the comment section was fascinating because this is the great thing about when you start getting into the depths of a film and you start pulling apart the soundtrack the only people that are commenting are, are other nerds that just love it too and it's it's the song that plays as he and uh christoph waltz are coming into Candyland with DiCaprio playing Monsieur Candy. And it's this very epic moment of Django sitting atop a horse, riding into what I think is considered the fourth largest plantation in, in the South. And he's trotting along and there's this trail of slaves and various other people behind him. And he turns to the right and he has this vision of his wife, Brumhilde, who is standing amidst the cotton fields wearing this beautiful, uh, yellow dress and it's this incredibly epic moment that is led so heavily by that sound by that music and they pull up to the to the, to the main house and it really crescendos into this remarkable part where it focuses on Samuel L. Jackson who's astonished by the fact that a black man's just ridden in on a horse and uh, and this one person had broken it down in such a beautiful way talking about that and it really took me back to suddenly having that moment of clarity that this is what I want to do I want to pair all of these things I've grown up adoring into one space and that's the role of a director or at least as far as I'm concerned mm -hmm. that's it yeah. it's, it's I love it, music too yeah Mo mostly a rock and roll fanatic yeah sure me too <laughs> <laughs> as well as uh, I love Russian romanticism from the classical period I think Rachmaninoff yes. is one of the most genius humans to have ever existed as far as music is concerned and it's astonishing what that man was capable of doing um but yeah that that that's that's what this is and i think directing is such a it's such a such a special thing to be able to to exercise i think as a, as an individual and really the other beauty is that it makes you into a very sociable person because really the best stories come from your ability to observe and and converse with everybody and anybody which this city makes very easy and i have so many of these experiences and again it, it spurs me to want to continue to write so i note these things down they're all written down and once once we discuss this post post recording I'll, I'll, I'll make a note of it but essentially i just have folders and folders of snippets of moments which i'm sort of somewhat working out how to string together into something that's actually uh, digestible cohesive piece of work um but maybe as a great a great closer would be to hear if you had any advice for both myself and anybody else on the nature of feeling the the pressure of wanting to create something and not necessarily knowing how to start doing that yeah i think that um it's very hard to know what the path is going to be. It's not, you know, there's no, you know, sequence of courses you can take to get, like, to get a degree in something, you know. And so I think that instinct is probably one of the key things. And um, just also um, set aside time and 
you know, the place every day, if possible, to work on it, whether it's writing something or studying something. And um, I think the main thing is you have to keep an open mind as to exactly where this is going. It might turn out that it's a, a short. It might turn out that it's a music video. It might, I don't know, you know. Uh, so I think it's, it's something you just have to keep on it without actually knowing what the result is going to be. Also, another thing that people um, sometimes don't think about is I think there's really something fabulous in being a director of a film which you did not write. There's a, a definition that uh, the, the director is the first audience. So if you're not the writer, you are sitting in that seat already as, as a reading it and thinking about it as the first audience. So in that sense, like it's not all yours. It's not your, t totally your vision, your, your project. You're collaborating. You're bringing something that you think is beautiful and interesting to the next stage. So you don't have to do it all. So I guess those are, do work on it every day. You don't have to do it all. Collaborate with other people. Assess something that you think is worth doing that maybe isn't yours. And, um, you know, all the above. <laughs> That's a solid analysis, I think. And also a, a very beautiful way to close off. Um, so I want to thank you very much for sharing your time with me, sharing your stories, and uh, very much look forward to continuing our conversation post-recording. All thank right, you. thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>